This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. Have you been following the royal visit? Are you excited by it? Are you interested? It's day two, and as you heard in Bob's News, Prince Charles and Camilla, the Duchess of Cornwall, are focusing on the tragedy in Ukraine, attending a church service and meeting a displaced woman and her two children. They will make several more stops before a platinum jubilee reception at Rideau Hall. Of course, the focus of the visit is Indigenous reconciliation. We'll explore that more a bit later. But how do Canadians feel about the royal couple? Are they making headway, gaining a place in our hearts? Do we respect their growing role in our system of government? as Charles takes more and more duties from the Queen. The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-744-740. Now I am joined by Alison Eastwood, Editor-in-Chief of Hello Canada magazine. Hi, Alison. Hello. How are you? I'm fine. How are you? (laughs) I'm doing well, thanks. Well, how are the royals doing? <laughs> well, as as you have commented, uh, Prince Charles and Camilla are currently on a bit of a whirlwind tour of Canada. Um, they are visiting um, uh, Newfoundland and Labrador, um, Ottawa and the Northwest Territories, um, which may be the most significant piece. Uh, that happens tomorrow. As you said, there will be... Um, conversations about uh, Indigenous issues and, um, you know, Charles has been speaking a lot with uh, Governor General Mary Simon about the country's reconciliation efforts. Um, so we're looking forward to, uh, you know, seeing what that yields. But um, yes, I mean, I think the, you know, we might be slightly disappointed that um, the future King and Queen are spending just three days here in the Queen's Platinum Jubilee year. But that said, they all have a lot of ground to cover on the Queen's behalf, especially as she is unable to, you know, make such trips herself this time around. So, um, yes, but of course, it's very much on everyone's minds that we are looking at the future future King and his Queen consort right now. Well, uh, that's what I'm trying to get at is what is your sense about how people feel of them? People have a huge amount of affection and respect for the Queen. Mm-hmm. Um, Charles, I mean, we've known him for a long time. Uh, I, I don't think people feel the same way about him. Uh, he's considered, I think, uh, pretty eccentric and there was the whole Diana saga. So where is he at in terms of uh, winning hearts and minds? Um, well, it's interesting. Every year at the, at the, at the end of the year, we do a, a poll of Hello Readers, um, uh, you know, specifically addressing that topic. Um, you know, who are your favorite royals? Um, do you agree that the monarchy is important to Canadian identity and to Canada as a whole? Um, so this year, 21-22, Charles and Camilla both rose in popularity, which was interesting, um, sitting at um, number 9 and 10, respectively, which doesn't sound great, but um, that was a, that did mark an increase from the year before. Um, the Queen, of course, is still top of the charts. Um, yeah, I mean, I think the Queen really did a great service to her eldest son and heir, as well as to Camilla when she stated earlier this year that it was her deepest wish um, that when Charles um, accedes the throne, she, he will um, have Camilla by his side as queen consort. And that um, that's not a trivial statement from the queen because, um, you know, for... 
for many reasons, um, it was stated earlier that Camilla would be uh, princess, styled Princess Camilla, so as not to ruffle any feathers in the wake of um, Diana's death. Um, and it's really a mark of how much Camilla has, you know, certainly kind of entrenched herself and won over won people's hearts, not just in Britain, but elsewhere Alison, as well. I'm very curious about your poll. If the Queen was number one and Charles and Camilla are nine and ten, <laughs> who, who are the others <laughs> ranking ahead of them? So, okay, so it's, this is in descending order. It's the Queen, Kate. William, Charlotte, George, Louis, um, which are all of uh, the Cambridge's children, of course. Um, then Sophie, Countess of Wessex, uh, Prince Edward's wife. Uh, wow. Definitely rose, rose in the polls. She's at number seven, followed by Princess Anne, the hardest working royal who does the most royal engagements. And, um, and then followed by Charles and Camilla. Wow. So, um, yeah, very. Uh, it, it's always interesting to see how people respond to that question. Um, you know, I think. I mean, you mentioned that Charles is seen as eccentric. I, I would, you know, perhaps suggest that his eccentricities have been um, validated in some respects, especially when it comes to uh, things like conservation, um, and um, I think that. You know, yes, this is a, a sort of a publicity tour, but it, it does also sort of show Charles at his best, I think, and doing what he does best. And he's he's not afraid to shy away from discussing issues that perhaps other members of the royal family might feel less comfortable tackling head on. So I, I do think that's one of his <clears throat> one of his strengths. Well, you know, other polls have showed that uh, a small majority of Canadians would like to get rid of the monarchy once he becomes king. Uh, what do you make of that? Well, again, I mean, when we poll our readers, of course, there's a certain intrinsic bias there because many of our readers, most of our readers are, are you know, fans of the royal family. Um, so about, so 83% of our readers still agree with the statement that the monarchy is important to Canadian identity and to Canada as a whole. Um, you know, many, many people saying that they really don't like the alternatives and that the, you know, not only do the monarchy give us a sense of our history, but also um, a balance. And, um, you know, nobody wants to see, uh, a lot of people don't want to see Canada becoming a republic in the way that the United States is. Um, the monarchy gives us stability that elected presidents don't, um, they would maintain. Um, so there's a very strong feeling still that not only is the monarchy important to our identity, it's also important politically because, um, you know, ultimately it does remove a little of the, the edge from um, elected, you know, and the power that uh, elected governments have. Um, yeah, but in terms of the future of the monarchy, though, only 72% agree that the monarchy has a strong future ahead. And that is directly related to the fact that, you know, the Queen is 96 years old. And um, people do feel that perhaps um, the popularity will wane a little when uh, Her Majesty is no longer here. Uh, so just... In closing, do you think will will Charles and Camilla grow on Canadians? <laughs> I think so. I mean, the last time they were here, actually, they, they had a rousing reception. And, um, you know, it's too bad they're not here for Canada Day, although that may not even be happening uh, on Parliament Hill. So <laughs> um, perhaps it's a moot point. But, um, you know, I, 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 I do hope you know, for their sake as well as ours, that they, they do spend a bit more time here because, you know, they, the monarchy has a very deep relationship with Canada and there are a lot of um, of countries, you know, jumping ship, as it will. Um, we, you know, we saw a lot of controversy over some of the uh, royal tours earlier this year. Um, and, um, you know, Canada is a very important, like, ally to the crown. The crown is important to Canada. So, um Yes, I think that Charles and Camilla will definitely grow on Canadians they may not have won over yet, 
but um, they will need to visit a little more, I think, to um, sort of shore up that relationship. Okay, thank you so much, Alison Eastwood, the Editor-in-Chief of Hello Canada. Thanks for having me. Well, as we said earlier, the main focus of the trip is Indigenous reconciliation. And yesterday, the Prince made a speech telling us we have to be honest about the darker aspects of our history. What about the crowns? Some Indigenous leaders want an apology from the Queen. Meanwhile, will this royal visit crystallize the desire to break away from the monarchy? We've had polls showing that many Canadians, just more than half, want to see that happen after the Queen passes. So what do you think? The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll-free one 866 740 Now let's go to Peter Dinolo, a former longtime director of communications to Prime Minister Jean Chrétien and Kat Krieger, an Indigenous philosopher, traditional teacher, and knowledge keeper. Hello and thanks for joining us. Hi. Hi there. Good to hear you. Nice, nice to talk to you both again. Kat, have you been watching the royal visit? And I, I've noted how meaningful it is for some residential school survivors. Uh, is it meaningful for you? It uh, always brings up a question for me. And I, admittedly, I have not been watching the royal tour. In fact, I haven't been watching anything on a big screen other than emails. Um, but sometimes it pops a question in my hand, what is a royal tour and what is it they see they are touring? Or do they see us as, uh, you know, extension, one of the colonies? Um, that's, that's what's been going through my brain anyways, is what is it they are touring and how do they see our, how do they see our, their relationship with us in, in particular? Peter Dinolo, uh, obviously, uh, Prince Charles and Camilla do not hold the same place in Canadians' hearts as the Queen does. Uh, What do you make of what they're doing and how they're doing on this visit? Listen, my position is that the monarchy is an institution totally out of step with with the modern Canada. It's it's an anti-democratic institution by definition. You're born into high office. Uh, And secondly, it's a foreign institution. These people aren't Canadians. Uh, and to have uh, the monarchy, the monarch, as the continues the head of state, I think is a, is an insult, and it's kind of our our last our last act of of, of adolescence as a country is to 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 uh, to tolerate this. And if we were uh, serious about being a, a an independent nation, we would uh, we would uh, get rid of the monarchy. All sorts of other uh, countries, former uh, members of the former colonies have done this. It's uh, it's past due, and you know our history has been one of slowly loosening these these ties. Now this is kind of the last vestige, and uh, we ought to let it go. And by the way, I I reject the the false dichotomy that your your previous guest put out there about well it's either this or an American style system. That's you know balderdash. I mean the fact is there are dozens of countries around the world, former British colonies uh, and other democracies that have uh, don't have a monarch but don't have an american style system and we should we could easily adapt to that. Uh I want to give the numbers out again. So uh people, do you agree with Peter? Uh should we take the opportunity or at least when the queen's time is over uh to get rid of the monarchy and to be a fully grown-up adult nation 4163600740 toll-free 18667404740 and Kat Krieger uh I've been talking to people who are telling me that indigenous people uh, obviously have a lot of issues with the crown, but also a special relationship that is meaningful for them. Do you agree with that characterization? I, w- I would think, you know, of course, other people's views, definitely. Um, there is people that have uh, a connection with the monarchy, with, with the queen, the popularity of the queen, etc. Um, and as Peter was saying, there are... Uh, you know, there's almost a mentorship concept in what other countries are doing and how they are dealing with not being part of the the um, 
what was colonization, stepping away from it into different systems of governance. So, and of course, I always say I can't speak for everyone else in a sense only for myself, but this, this idea that that country exists on the other side of the planet, as it were, um, it, for me, sometimes it's strange to see a governance component stepping in from another, another side of the world. Almost like, uh, you know, if I can explain it, simply the, the mayor of uh, Vancouver having some sway or say over what's happening in Toronto. Okay, let us take a couple of calls. We've got Derek and Markham. Hello, Derek. Hello, good afternoon. Afternoon? Yep. What's your thought, Derek? I think it is time we get rid of the monarchy. We don't need that in Canada. Um, It's about time to get rid of it. I came from the islands, and I know what I went through as a kid. Take me out of school for hours and take put me at the side of the road with a small Union Jack in my hand, you know, and they came along in a rover, a Land Rover Jeep with a shade over them. And we don't need that in Canada. It's time to get rid of the monarchy. And what do you think that, uh, you know, Barbados has, has uh, gotten rid of the monarchy? Uh, uh, other Caribbean countries want to do that. Um, you know, here in Canada, everybody says it's too complicated. It's not complicated. I heard your guest said earlier about um, we don't need to be like the United States. Canada could do better than the United States. We don't need that. Okay. Thank you very much for that, Derek. Okay. Bye. You have a nice day. Thanks. Let's go to Norm in Niagara Falls. Hi, Norm. Hello, Libby. You're on the air. Go ahead. Yes, I am. Okay. First of all, in reply, a polite reply to your first three questions at the top of the program. Polite no. Secondly, I agree with Peter. And that's that's it. That's it. You you want to see an end to the monarchy? Yes, ma'am. Okay, Norm. Thanks for that. You're welcome. Okay. Uh, so we're getting the calls from people who want to see an end to the monarchy. And Peter, of course, the argument against it always is that it's too complicated here in Canada. In Barbados, it required one vote. Here, we would need all the provinces to agree. Uh, and we would also, in some of them, need uh, some kind of referendum or, or a majority of the population to agree. Right. I mean, that is the criticism. And, you know, the last time the country tried constitutional change, it ended in disaster 30 years ago. So I can understand people's, uh, people's uh, you know, lack of, uh, of uh, excitement over that option. But the fact is, Libby, that, that we should be talking about this stuff. You know, you were mentioning, you know, what do we do when the Queen passes? You know, we normally do our estate planning before we die. So here we are, you know, she's 95, 96, God bless her, she's a a very impressive woman, but she's not going to be with us forever. Now, actually, is the time to have this discussion, not after she's gone. There's a couple other things, by the way, that, that, you know, there is some debate among some legal scholars that it might not take a constitutional amendment, that actually the the Parliament needs to to, um, enact legislation proclaiming the uh, new monarch when there is a monarch, and if the the Parliament simply refused to do that, that could create a de facto abolition of the monarchy. But we need to talk about these things. Uh, I consider it, like I said, a standing insult that we still have these foreigners uh, as our head of government, uh, I mean, our head of state. Over time, we've gotten rid of all the other elements of uh, British colonialism. This is the last one. In fact, we've erased so much of the monarchy in our day-to-day lives. The Queen's not on most of the currency. You don't sing God Save the Queen when you go to the movies, as people did, you know, uh, decades ago, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So this is the last step. And, uh, you know, it's weird that it's, that it's for the reasons you said, that it seems to be the, the, the biggest one to take. I, I'm very curious about what you just said. So if Parliament doesn't proclaim the monarch, that's one thing, but can they uh, appoint somebody else in that job? I, I forget what the well, type... What so this was uh, the Edward, Edward McWhinney, who was a constitutional uh, scholar in British Columbia, who had this theory. And uh, the view is that, the, that things would just carry on. The Governor-General would be uh, the, 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 the 
fact, she, the de facto head of state anyway. Uh, but she would, you know, basically become the head of state, and that we would just stop talking about and referring to the uh, to the um, to the British monarch as our as our head of. Uh, uh, as our head of state. The other thing, of course, is, you know, there's all sorts of oaths uh, that people swear, whether it's an oath to office, citizenship oaths, all that kind of stuff. Excise the queen out of there, or the monarch out of there. We don't need uh, to swear allegiance to the uh, heir, to the heir of the current monarch. And first of all, secondly, you don't need a constitutional change to make those kind of changes. And Kat Krieger, you know, all the treaties and everything, uh, the treaties are made with the crown. Yes, and that's, uh, you know, it's interesting. I'll refer back to our, I think, our first caller who talked about waving a Union Jack standing in the sun um, while the procession went by in, in visually great comfort. Um, I remember being a child in, in Manitoba and seeing a big banner on the back of our room where the Union Jack was in the classroom, and it said, the sun never sets on the British Empire. And I can't imagine the controversy such a banner would now create that idea that around the world there has been this, the effect of what the British monarchy was. So you know, And you know what the comeback to that one is, because you can't trust them in the dark, that's why. <laughs> yeah, and it's, uh, you know, the, the, the idea of, of domination or proclaimed yeah. domination or examples thereof is really not where we are. And, and I think the phrase, they are out of step, was mentioned earlier as well. And what is it? Uh, You know, Peter said planning ahead. And, you know, adaptability is part of planning ahead. And how can we plan ahead and adapt what is basically a new world, new way of looking at things? And certainly with treaties, um, you know, treaties, you know, the word treaty, if you look it up, talks about an agreement between two nations to be honored, upheld, and to the benefit of both in in most cases, depending which Wikipedia definition you pull up. Um, but certainly haven't been honored. And in a sense, there's a breach of contract there, which, you know, delays some of the underlying uh, point of making a treaty with Indigenous people. And certainly, we have not benefited from that. Okay, let's take a few more calls. We've got Mary in Ancaster. Hello, Mary. Hello. Um, I have a question, several questions. I would like to know, how much does the monarchy cost the Canadian taxpayer? How much of our taxes are going to support them? And this co- this trip right now, how much is that costing the Canadian taxpayer? Um, I, uh, I do not know how much this trip is costing. I mean, uh, it, when internationally protected persons come here, we pay for their security, that is for sure. And uh, they would qualify for that. I guess that's something to look up. Uh, Peter, do you have any idea? Yeah, my understanding is that the, the monarchy, when they're not on Canadian soil, really don't cost us anything, yeah. uh, other than you know putting their faces on our on our currency or, or stamps or whatever. But but the uh, but when they are on Canadian soil, we pay for everything, not just the um, not just the security, which we would do for a foreign head of state, uh, but everything, the whole trip here. So I mean, uh, and the and same the thing, I allowance too, I believe. Maybe uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I I think a lot of that the British pay for. Uh, but when they're in Canada, we cover. So maybe I don't. Know, maybe they prorate their clothes when they're in Canada. I have no idea. But I know we cover their their uh, their the we we pick up the tab. I wish I when could do in that. Canada. Um, I just got a note from our producer Eve. So the 2017 visit they made also for three days cost. Four hundred and eighty-seven thousand six hundred and sixty-one dollars and sixty-eight cents. So uh, mm. there's been inflation. This is this one uh, probably costs a bit more. So it's a lot of money, but it's not you know in the scheme of things. Yeah. it's it's, uh, it's not it's 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 marginal. Yep, it's uh, Canadian heritage that pays. So Mary, yeah. I hope that answers your question. Okay, I'd just like to also know if if you could ever find this out. Um, every country pays money to the you know, to support the monarchy. How much does the Canada pay? No, uh, no, we don't. We don't pay money. No, we don't pay anything. We don't pay you anything. Don't? Um, okay. You might be talking about the Commonwealth. That's something different. Let's go to Jan in Guelph. Hi, Jan. You're British. How do you feel about uh, this? I really would like to see the monarchy stay, even though it will be different. It'll be a younger set of uh, you know people. But what about our British pensions? Will it affect that? 
Huh, I hope not. <laughs> well, I, I, I wouldn't uh, think no, so I'd if like you're to British. I'd like to stay for many reasons, too many to list. Too many to list? Uh, I, no, think no. It's, I think it's, um, I just think, I just think it's wonderful uh, to have the monarchy. That's all. Okay, Jan, thank, <laughs> thank you for you. that. Bye-bye. Well, you know, that that's one of the things. I think that people of British heritage uh, are, they're like the monarchy, they're nostalgic, uh, they feel culturally connected to it. And here in Canada, as we have more and more people who come from very different backgrounds, it just, you know, doesn't mean the same. You know, it's interesting. We had these uh, virtually the same debate in the 1960s uh, over adopting a Canadian flag, our own Canadian flag. And, you know, there were, there were a lot of people who had a deep connection, even more so then when so much uh, we were a less diverse society, a deep connection to Britain and felt this was uh, somehow uh, denying our past. But, you know, Pearson, who was the prime minister then, had a great line that we need to uh, honor our past but embrace our future. And I think that was true when we adopted the flag in 1965, a very emotional, divisive moment that people got over and moved forward with with pride very quickly. Yeah, you know what? Um, my understanding or my read, let's say, is that most of the objections to doing it are just the difficulty uh, because of the constitutional issues. And, you know, frankly, it, I don't think it's on the top 10 list of, right. of things that we have to fix in our society. So should it ever come to pass, I, I don't think it'll be that emotional or that controversial, frankly. That's, that's, that's my take. And a lot hmm. of the affection for royals, my take too, it's, it's, it's part of celebrity culture. Mm-hmm. And hmm. Charles and Camilla, Camilla uh, they don't have the glam factor. Yeah, there's a, I think there was a point about, uh, you know, Charles and Camilla and being kind of viewed as eccentricities in, in the royal family. And certainly if we go back through history, there are a lot of eccentric royals uh, in, in different states. But, you know, eccentricities can sometimes be an opportunity to move forward and take a different view on what is the connection of loyalty to Canada uh, in the present way things are. And certainly for a lot of Indigenous people, there is that component of, it's a visit from the conquerors. I know that's, uh, I talked to several people this morning, that was one of the things that popped up. Um, of respect to our, our British caller, of course, far be it for me as an Indigenous person, considering what many of the Indigenous people have went through, to deny anyone of their own heritage. So there's that, that two sides of me. I don't want to see anybody else denied of their heritage or their, their connections to their own land or their own people but certainly don't want it to affect uh, people in other countries and other lands. So, Well, I, I understand sorry, the, the cultural connection, but also, you know, the British people, people of British heritage here, they, they did come here to live. Anyway, we're mm-hmm. out of time. Last 20 seconds to Peter. No, I mean, listen, this becomes a perennial talk, right? Every time a British monarch or a royal alights in Canada, we have this discussion. Maybe one day we'll, we'll, we'll move out of our parents' basement and full adulthood. <laughs> okay, lovely analogy. Thank you so much, Peter Danolo and Kat Krieger. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, a a disturbing economic indicator. We're seeing an increase in bankruptcies. It comes at a time when we're being told that the economy actually is in good shape, so we'll talk about that when we come back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Lately, we've been hearing a lot of good news about the economy as we emerge from the pandemic, but another story is also coming out. Bankruptcies are on the rise as pandemic subsidies and supports are being withdrawn. According to the Canadian Association of Insolvency and Restructuring Professionals, inflation could spark more insolvencies going forward. So what do you think? Uh, I know that when 
I walk by a lot of the, you know, the, the business streets, whether it is in on Bloor Street or around here, I see a lot of businesses that are gone. They're shut down and their premises are for lease or for sale. And uh, it's a little upsetting. Uh, so what do you think? The number is 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-744-740. And now I'm joined by Dr. Stephanie Benishai, Distinguished Research Professor at Osgood Hall Law School and York University, who teaches about bankruptcy, contract, commercial law, and financial crises. Dr. Benishai, thank you. Hello, Libby. um, Thanks for having me. Okay, so we're seeing the numbers rise. Uh, uh, We're seeing the numbers rise, but they haven't quite hit pre-pandemic levels. So how serious is that? Right. So we we are definitely starting to see an increase, um, but well below pre-pandemic levels. We're right now still experiencing something that's been referred to as the bankruptcy gap. Globally, we're about 80% down in historical uh, filing levels versus if you think about the global financial crisis that some people might remember, uh, 2007, 2008, we were up 150%. So as you mentioned, we have the um, government support to thank in part. Uh, Globally, we saw about $13.8 trillion globally in sustained government support. Um, we also saw various forms of regulatory relief. That means uh, the government stepped in and introduced certain legislative measures that uh, asked or forced creditors to hold back in terms of enforcing the loans that they were owed. Um, so those two have really uh, stalled any um, increase in filings in a sustained way. However, as you pointed out, we do have a number of factors that are taking hold right now. We have inflation. We have the increase in interest rates. Um, we have geopolitical tensions, not just in Ukraine. Uh, we have climate concerns and all sorts of other volatility um, that's kind of hovering around. We also have uh, increasing number of businesses that are often referred to as zombie businesses or zombie companies. And these are businesses that are heavily indebted, and um, they are generating cash. They're covering the running costs and their fixed costs, but they can't cover the debt itself that they have. So they're not able to service um, their debt. And creditors, especially Canadian creditors, were very much encouraged to be patient, to hold off, to be gentle, and that patience is starting to wear thin as their own creditors and their own stakeholders are putting pressure on them to take action. So the slight increase in filings that we are seeing are um, more in this kind of under $10 million in debt companies that uh, look more like these zombie businesses at this point. We have yet to see an increase in the large uh, filings that people would be more familiar with, like the Sears, the Eaton's. Those types of businesses go through a big restructuring process typically called um, through a piece of legislation called the Companies Creditors Arrangements Act. And that's an, a, a quite sophisticated so, process that can have different outcomes. Okay, yeah. well, I've, I've covered quite a number of those. Right. But uh, there are a lot of businesses, I mean, uh, the government is a creditor because there are a right. lot of businesses, one of the supports mm-hmm. w- was debt, um, yeah. by the government and right. a lot of businesses are, they're not back to their full sales. Right. And they are making, as you said, they're generating some cash, but there's no way that they can chip away at this government debt they have. And is there, are those businesses in danger? Yeah, so you raise a really interesting issue. Government as creditor is a kind of unique beast, and we've seen that play out in the consumer context, too. Um, Many people who did obtain relief um, during the uh, height of the COVID crisis um, uh, now are being called on to repay some of that and unable to, and businesses are in the same boat. 
Um, we made a decision in Canada in terms of how we treat the government as a creditor uh, a number of years ago. We changed the government status uh, to very similar to an ordinary creditor, except for in some very unique circumstances. The big one being where money is owed uh, for what is taken out of your paycheck each month. And then the business that takes it out, your employer, is required to remit that to the government. So that's income tax, EI, and CPP, the employee portion, as well as the employer portion. That, if it's not remitted to the government, has a special, very high priority, and the government has all sorts of remedies to go after that amount. The other types of debts, like the ones you've just spoken about, um, potentially relating to government support, would be treated as ordinary unsecured debt meaning they're not secured by a particular asset that the government can come in and take. So the government has no higher status or no um, better ability to collect on that and other creditors who are in the same boat. So really, when we think about the government as a creditor, we have to think about them in the same way as we think about other creditors in the corporate context. And it's going to be the case. Uh, as interest rates continue to rise, that we will probably see more of these zombie firms that are credited, that have the government as creditors as well as other creditors, um, increasingly uh, entering insolvency proceedings. And that's not a bad thing. Um, it is a drag on the market and it affects all of us to have uh, unhealthy firms operating, limits recovery, and also has implications for inflation and interest rates. So I, I want to reframe bank, bankruptcy is not necessarily a bad thing, but something that is actually a necessary part of our economic recovery coming out of this pandemic. So should we expect to see more empty storefronts? I can't really comment on the storefronts being empty or not. That's not necessarily directly correlated with bankruptcy. Stores just shut down because they realize bricks and mortars are not effective business models and shift online. That's not necessarily a bad thing. So that's more of a consumer demand. Are we, are, have we shifted our consumer practices uh, such that we like to shop at home and don't really enjoy that kind of social face-to-face aspect? I think that's a different kind of question um, than if we'll see more uh, bankruptcy filings. Okay. Anything else you'd like to leave us with? Um, I think probably the biggest uh, the biggest challenge uh, going forward is going to be uh, thinking through uh, creative ways for businesses to access uh, capital as increasing kind of constraints come through. And an effective bankruptcy system will actually mean that they will have more access to capital because lenders will be more willing to participate. Okay, Dr. Stephanie Benyishai, thanks very much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. We're taking another break, and when we come back, which professions do you respect the most? There's a, a fun and interesting new poll which kind of ranks them, you know, doctor, lawyer, or whatever. Uh, who do you respect the most? Who do you trust? We'll have that when we come back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Who do you respect the most? Is it the people who govern us? I doubt that. The prime minister, the premier, or our teachers, our doctors. A new Maru poll actually measures the top most respected professions in Canada this year, and frontline workers top the list with paramedics first at 92%, then firefighters, 91.4, and nurses coming in third, 89.6. So who's in last place? The owners of social media platforms. I don't even think we have any of those really in Canada. So what do you think? Which professions do you respect the most? 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-744-740. And now I'd like to welcome John Wright, Executive Vice President of Maru Public Opinion. Hi, John. Hi, Libby. Great to be with you. Great. This is kind of a, it's an interesting thing. 
Now, I'm I'm not a hundred percent sure what these percentages mean. So, paramedics at ninety two percent. There's ninety two percent of people thought they were the, the most respected. Well, it's actually a, a slightly different way of looking at it because we gave scores. So, what you do is, if you respect them very much, you get a hundred oh. points. If you respect them somewhat, you get seventy points. If you respect them not very much, you get thirty. And if you say, I don't respect them at all, you get zero. So when you add up the numerics, not uh-huh. the percentages, those numbers, that's what you end up with. So collectively, out of an average score of 67.9, they end up at 92, which is, you know, so far up the scale. It's amazing. Well, I, I was wondering where I rank, because you have two separate categories, journalists, I'm a journalist, and uh, radio and TV talk show hosts. So uh, I guess I take the average. Journalists are more respected than (laughs) radio talk show hosts. So uh, one is 58 and one is 54. So I guess uh, guess I'd be at 56. Well, actually, you're higher, and I'll give you a good reason for it. Oh, well, thank you, you, John. I'm very relieved to hear that. Well, it started, this kind of research for me started back in 1997. I started doing uh, those polls you hear on trust. Those were actually the first ones that I did, and now they carry on. And we found that trust was the most important asset that somebody or an institution or a corporation would have in order to move things along. You trusted what they said. But over the last 20 years that we've seen as a diminishment in trust. And we've seen the ascension of what's called respect, which is trust is part of that, but it's a bigger entity when you come to measuring how people are are viewed. So the first thing is you respect somebody uh, or a profession, and that's what you get is this number. But when it comes to an occupation such as a journalist, um, here's what you have. You have a relationship. You have a relationship with Libby Snymer. So and it's a long-standing one if you've been listening to Zoomer and even before that, you yeah. know, I go back way before that. So while I may put the occupation at a certain level, I actually put you much higher. I respect <laughs> you. No, 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 but this is true because you, you could see I, you know, there was an old joke that I had. Somebody said to me, if you had a choice, uh, you know, would you sit with an insurance salesman, you know, flying out to Vancouver? And I said, not a chance. I'd move somewhere else because I'm up to my eyeballs. I don't want to be sold anything. And then they said, yeah, but what about if it was your own insurance salesman? And we'd be, yeah, okay, well, I'll sit with him because he's a good person and I don't mind talking to him. The relationship matters. So you are a relationship that we have every single day. So that, in fact, gets you above the the average that one would give to a particular occupation. Whereas paramedics, uh, nurses, doctors, even pilots, they are the people who we put our lives in their hands. And they have, you know, been at the top of the list for this. What surprised me about it is this continuing relationship we have with grocery clerks and farmers. This would not have been on any of those lists. Maybe they'd be down in the 20 list, but not in the top 10 if we hadn't gone through what we did over the last couple of years. So grocery clerks, uh, farmers, those people who are essential to us, I guess you could put them up with firefighters because they're essential, but those people continue to be in the top tier of the 29 that we measured. And I think, again, it's based on relationships that we forged with them during some pretty tough times. Okay. Uh, I want to give the numbers out again. I'd like to hear from people, uh, you know, which professions do you respect the most? 416-360-0740. Toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And I'm looking at another ranking that I think defies the who would you like to sit beside on a flight to Vancouver because... Professional sports players only have 50.6, but I bet many, many, many people would really love to get beside them. Well, but it it makes my point again. These are the average that you would look at an occupation and say, would I do something? Austin Matthews? Absolutely, in a moment. Uh, You know, musicians? Well, you can take your pick. Randy Bachman? That actually happened. To my colleague and I going out to Vancouver, where he happened to be in the middle seat. <laughs> in the middle seat? You're kidding. Oh, and, and then coming back with Sarah McLaughlin in the seat in front. I mean, their personalities. 
They're people you have a relationship with. Now, they may say, look, I don't want to be bothered talking to anybody, and you respect their privacy like good Canadians. But the reality is that people in these occupations, when you need them, you have a relationship with them. So the relationship we have with owners of social media platforms are twofold right now, and they're at the bottom of the list. One is what we see, read, and hear from them. And oftentimes today, it's not positive. And secondly, is the personalities behind that. I, I'm not sure that the, the head of uh, Facebook is going to win any personality prizes <laughs> anytime soon. Um, so, so again, it's respect is a good thing to measure against because it takes in the agglomerate of all of those feelings and allows you to, to apply them in a different way than just simply one attribute. Okay, let's take a call from Jim in Pickering. Hi, Jim. Hi, good afternoon, Libby. Libby, I would like to know where um, the transit operators uh, fit on that list. I think they're the Rodney Dangerfield of the whole system. Uh, they rank 11th. Oh. And yeah. uh, they 80.6%. Oh. Oh, that's good. I guess. So that's 11. Sorry, was it out of uh, 20 or out of 100? No, twenty nine. So out of out of twenty nine um, occupations measured, transit oh, okay. workers are at eleven. Oh, and you'd say, well, where do they rank? You know, around them. Well, air, airline pilots at nine, grocery store owners and clerks at ten, transit workers at eleven, followed then by oh. teachers, veterinarians, engineers, and police officers and judges. So you're in good company. Oh, I feel better. I'm retired now, but I feel better. Thank you very much. You're very welcome. I'm, I'm glad we made you feel better. Let's go to Jane in Scarborough. Hi, Jane. Hi, Libby. How are you? You're fine. How are you? I'm good. You know, the one profession that I think is so is just amazing are servers in restaurants and bars. I don't know how they take all those orders. They don't write it down. They come out with trays on their arms and it's not all over the floor. They like I saw one woman she balanced five plates on her forearm. Like how do they do that? You know what? My mother who was tiny used to be a server and, she, and in a steakhouse and she also like she could have three on one arm and two on another and it was amazing. Yeah, and I have a friend who is a server. She can actually take 10 orders, drinks, appetizers, main course, and dessert, and not write them down and know exactly who had what at the table. Her her biggest she ever did was 10, and she never got it wrong. And I just like, I mean, I'm I'm an accountant, and I don't know how (laughs) she does that. It's just incredible. Servers, I I bow to you, all of you. You're amazing. Except, you know what? I don't see them on this list, John. Well, no, if they haven't been, they would be, in, you're absolutely right. I mean, hospitality workers could be added to this um, list next time. I have to confess that our youngest son, who's now 19, has a, um, a summer job as a server at um, St. Louis uh, Wings on, on Young Street. So there's the plug for them right there. But, but it's the first question I ask them. How do you keep those orders in your brain? It is amazing. I, you know, I, it, it troubles me just to keep five or six numbers in my mind. Um, and I've been doing this for a long time, but I can never understand how they can stand there and go through it. So Libby, let's have another session on that because he hasn't told me yet. It's got to be one of the secret wonders of the world. But once I find out, I'll let you know for sure. But John, where are they on the list? Well, they haven't made it onto the list this year. It's uh, We've got 29 occupations. I guarantee that they will be on it next year. Okay, Jane, thank you for that. All right, um, thanks. Have a great day. We'll make day. sure they're on the list. Yeah, they should yeah. be number one, you know? <laughs> okay, well, uh, I've got to say that a lot of the places that I go to, and this is certainly not a criticism, I think they do great work, but uh, they have little little pads. They write things down. I've seen a couple that do, but like at other restaurants, I see some, like the, the more experienced and seasoned servers, um, they they never write it down. You know, some do. The newer ones do, but the older ones, nope, they don't write them down at all. Okay. So it, they're they're incredible. Okay, Jane, thanks Have for that. Have a great day. Bye. Uh, it was uh, pretty funny 
when you talk about having notes, I know that uh, I covered the debate on Monday night and there was a lot of people made a big issue that the premier had his briefing book with him. I, I don't necessarily think that it's a bad thing to uh, to write things down so you don't forget. But well, anyway, you know, yeah. And that's why, you know, when you look at the list here, elected members of parliament being 26 of 29, it's, uh, you know, where, where do you get the respect? They, they are the Rodney Dangerfields. The only thing is that the owners of social media now make car salespeople, advertising practitioners, and elected members of parliament feel better because they're higher up on the list and they're not at the bottom. Look, I, I think that especially with your particular audience, which I fall into being a senior citizen this year on in July. Congratulations. Thank you. I feel rather good about it. Um, but it, it's troubling for somebody like me to keep it all uh, together in my head. There's just the filing cabinets are stuffed with so many different things. I don't uh, have a problem with anybody keeping notes or a binder, but I would say this politicians that uh, we have the expectation that they'll just say th- say it off the the um at the top of their head but it does take discipline like Doug Ford in order to just keep on track so that they continue to win an election campaign so he may be referring to notes but uh we've had you know 4 years to judge him on whether or not that in fact deserves the ballot uh, at the box and having a binder any one night is not going to make a big difference to what you decide uh you know over the next 10 days Okay, uh, uh, we have uh, woo, we have like a couple minutes left. John in Brampton, can you ask your question real quick? Yes, I'd like to nominate the police as number one, pharmacists as number two, and doctors number three. Okay, thanks, John, for that. Now, I remember previous lists where pharmacists were number one. I'll just tell you where they are there. One, two, three, four, six. five, six. Police are seven. Pharmacists are a little further down. Where are pharmacists? Well, pharmacists are six. Um, I've got police at 15. Oh. Um, and so they oh, are right. below engineers, veterinarians, and transit workers. Again, we have to remember that we don't have a personal relationship with many police officers unless they're in the family. And when they are, they're at the top of the list. But the police have had a pretty rough time. A lot of it does spill over from the United States. We started to see them drop in terms of trust about a decade or just over that ago. And so respect has taken them down a notch, uh, particularly because of what we've seen uh, in how they've reacted to certain circumstances. So, again, the occupation itself may be at 15 but the relationship you have with officers obviously makes it go one way or the other. And for most people, an individual officer will be at the top of the list or close to it. Okay, uh, John, 20 seconds, no more. What are you leaving us with? Well, respect matters. It's the new public equity to get things done because trust, in fact, uh, is no longer at the top of the list that drives uh, your reputation. So when it comes to reputation, it's a good thing to be respected more than anything else nowadays, and particularly for occupation. Okay, thank you so much, John Wright of Maru Public Opinion Research. And that is all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.